I have almost never ended up where I thought I was going to go or where I really had my sights set on. And again, I don't regret any bit of it because it's been such an interesting journey. A French major who'd spent a Fulbright year in Burkina Faso, Joey Hood, Dartmouth 96, seemed destined for West Africa upon entry into the Foreign Service. But not all roads lead where you expect them to. Find out how taking things as they come, but making the most of every moment once you get to the destination, is a winning strategy when your career bounces you all over the world. On today's Roads Taken, with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here with my friend Joey Hood, who has traveled around the girdled earth, and I actually got to meet him halfway around it. We're going to talk today about those roads that went far away and um, continue to lead him to great places. But first, Joey, we're going to ask the same question that I ask all my guests and friends who come on this show. When you were in college, who were you and who did you think you'd become? Mm. When I entered college, I was a a starry-eyed student from a very small town in New Hampshire, and I thought that the world was my oyster. I was uh, top of my class, and I thought, going to an Ivy League school, I'm going to be doing whatever I want to do. And then I quickly discovered, as I opened my first textbook and started listening to my fellow students sitting around the table, that... I had no idea what I was doing. Like uh, some of your other guests have said, uh, I had this moment where I felt like, did somebody make a mistake? Am I really supposed to be here? You know, but I just kept at it, kept my nose to the grindstone and, uh, you know, eventually started to understand what was going on around me. And what was the concentration that you decided upon at some point? Well, at first I thought I was going to study government. It was just something that always fascinated me. I thought maybe I work for some level of government, maybe I'd get into politics at some point. But I found myself surrounded by people who aspired to be lawyers. They were very argumentative, very passionate in a good way. But it just seemed to me that I didn't want to be arguing all the time, especially with people, many of whom had gone to private schools. They sounded to me like world-weary adults already. And I thought, you know, I'm just this little kid that somehow got into Dartmouth I got to work really, really hard just to keep up. Why don't I switch to something that I'm a little bit better at, which was French. And so that became my major um, somewhere midway through. So you had this idea that you might be in government. Then what was defined as government for you didn't really meet that expectation. Mm -hmm. So when you found the thing you were good at in French, did you kind of leave those government ideas behind for a while? Or were you like, oh, at some point, I'll marry them? How did that work? I did sort of just switch entirely. I dove right into the French. I did um, study abroad in Blois, another study abroad in Toulouse. And then I loved it. And I thought, well, I got to just keep going with this. But I've kind of done everything you can do at Dartmouth in metropolitan France. So why don't I try to go to West Africa? They speak French there too. And as will become a theme for the rest of my life, I just randomly wrote some letters to some school directors that I had found in a book somewhere and said, hey, I'd love to come to your school and teach English for a semester. I have nothing better to do. And one of them actually replied and she said, "Uh, sure, come on down. And I thought, great, okay, now I need to find a way to pay for it. 
<laughs> so I went to the Tucker Foundation and they gave me some money. That too was sort of a theme at Dartmouth. Like every time I went and had this great idea, I'd go and say, can somebody pay for it? And they were like, yeah, sure. We'll pay for you to not be here. And so that got me started in Senegal. And I'll never forget getting picked up from the airport and being brought to this wonderful Senegalese woman's house. You know, she offered me some food and something to drink. And she said, well, welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. How do you know Eve? And I said, well, who's Eve? She said, well, my son, of course. I assume that you're great friends and that's why you knew to write to me. And there was this look of horror on both of our faces as we suddenly realized that we had just completely randomly come together like that. But she figured, okay, I got this young American in my house now, and let's just see how this goes. And it was fantastic. We've been in touch ever since, you know, 25 years later. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so that was still during school. So upon right. graduation, what mm -hmm. was the grand plan? Well, uh, the grand plan kind of developed over time because after that experience, I went back to Dartmouth and I was like, all right, I got to do this again, but I need to not just like teach English in an off term, you know, I need to go and try to actually deepen my knowledge of West African literature because that's my major. So again, I got some money and uh, went back to Senegal and wrote my senior thesis on religious figures in Senegalese literature. And that was really eye-opening. And I, I felt like I had taken an, a fresh perspective on this character that Westerners really hadn't focused on before, but was very prominent in West African literature. So I was like, that's it. I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to be a French professor. And uh, so I applied to a couple of PhD programs. And fortunately, they rejected me. Oh. And uh, they told my advisor at the time, look, you know, uh, he wants to focus on West African and Caribbean French literature. And we actually have West Africans and Caribbean people who focus on that. We don't really need him doing that. So I was like, okay, you know, uh, I guess like everything else, I just took it in stride. Like, uh, I guess this isn't what I'm meant to do. So I applied for a Fulbright grant and got that. But at the same time, I, I was interviewing with the Career Center. They would bring in recruiters from investment companies and, you know, consultancies and things like mm -hmm. that. And I was like, well, let, you know, let's see if I can just get some options going here. So I, I interviewed, I remember one interview very clearly. It was with an agricultural type company. And they said, do you think you'd be able from this Ivy League background here to communicate with regular farmers out in the field? I said, boy, could I? You know, I come from a rural town right here in New Hampshire, you know, all the way up until my father, my family were farmers. And not only that, I just finished a semester talking to rural people out in Senegal, uh, all of whom are farmers, about their lives, their religion. And, and I wasn't even three quarters of the way through that. The interviewer looks at her watch and then looks back at me. And I said, we're oh, done, right? And she's like, no. yeah. I was I was talking Greek to her. So um, so I come out and I'm talking to the career advisor. And I say to him, look, I have this dilemma. You know, I'm interviewing for these jobs, but I've got this Fulbright in hand. And so how do you think I ought to prioritize things? And he goes all moneyball on me. And he's like, what's it going to take? you got to ask yourself, what's it going to take? 50,000? 60,000? What's it going to take? And I thought, oh, my gosh, you're talking about money? I'm, I wasn't even thinking about that at all. So if that's what 
people in this line of work are all focused on, then I'm definitely not going there. I'm going to go do the Fulbright and just, you know, sow my wild oats and discover, you know, more about West African culture. And the project that I had proposed to do was to look at, just as you said, to marry up somehow the French and the government background. And it was to look at how public policy from the French colonial era to the present had created the educational system that they had there. And uh, it was a very political subject, just fascinating. Yeah. So that was a one-year in-country uh, mm-hmm. pursuit? Yeah, I was in Burkina Faso um, because I looked up where people had gotten Fulbright grants in the previous five or 10 years or whatever it was. And virtually no one had gone to Burkina. So I thought, well, I probably won't face a whole lot of competition if I focus on that. That was the case. So I went and and did that for a year and and found that it was a very um, political topic. I made myself some enemies and uh, figured I needed to get into some other line of work for my own good. So I started, I had made some friends. I started making some contacts among the NGOs and was trying to get a job. And they all said, you're not even getting in the door here until you have a master's degree. I said, yeah, but Dartmouth. And they're like, whatever, master's degree. I said, okay. And I did, you know, apply to the major international relations schools and figured, well, if I get in, I guess I'll work for NGOs or maybe USAID. And so I focused on development economics. We arrived in Boston. Oh, by the way, I got married to someone I met in Burkina Faso. That was a major pivot in my life at the age of 23. Uh, Still married. Thank God. It was great. (laughs) So we, we looked at each other and we were like, oh, okay, I'm now in grad school and how are we going to pay for it? She said, why don't I work while you're in grad school and then you work and I'll go to school. It's a good plan. Yeah. So we get down to Boston and I go up to the Fletcher School at Tufts University. I go straight into the Career Services Center. I say, hey, uh, you know, I need like work study, fellowships, scholarships, anything you've got, throw it at me. I just, I need money to help pay for this. And so the guy hands me a couple of things. And then there's the one thing he holds back a paper and says, well, there's this, but it's not really for you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's for women and minorities. I said, that doesn't sound entirely right. Can I look at it? And across the top, it said, uh, you know, it's a scholarship for people who want to enter the Department of State, women and minorities, and those with financial need, particularly encouraged to apply. I was like, man, that's me right there in the small print. So, uh, (laughs) you know, because look, I'm a first generation college graduate. And I was looking at some stats a few years ago, I came across in a book by Robert Putnam called Our Kids. And he cites a longitudinal national education, not longitudinal study in 1988, when I happened to be an eighth grader. And this study looked at eighth graders starting right then all the way up until the year 2000 to see how many of those kids who scored poorly or middle of the road or really well on their PSAT, how many of them actually finished college? I scored really low on the PSAT and really low on the SAT as well. And my family was in the um, bottom income quartile, not totally at the bottom, but, you know, still in the bottom quartile. And so according to his chart, I had a 3% chance of finishing college. Not an Ivy League college. Right, right. A college. Right. So even though I read it like 20 years after graduating, it made me shiver. Yeah. I never realized how unlikely my story was. 
So it gets even unlikelier. So I grab this paper from this guy at the career center and he says, whatever, you know, it's due tomorrow. You can't possibly get everything in tomorrow. I said, Try me. hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for just like it was kismet, you know, I called every one of my, the people who had done recommendations for me in the past. They happened to be sitting next to their phones with nothing else to do and, you know, sent in the recommendations Long story short, I got in to the Foreign Service. They paid for my grad school, and uh, my wife was able to go to school immediately because of that. All I had to do was work for the State Department for at least five years as a Foreign Service officer. Which actually some of us had dreams of in high school and didn't get tattoos because we heard that was a rumor that you couldn't have one to like be in the Foreign Service. And then never even applied. There's still time, Leslie. Yeah, when my kids are gone, yeah. baby, I'm doing it. You but, can apply up until 59 and a half. Ooh, good Good to know. You learn things on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So here's my question. Did you see that as, I mean, some, some people, myself included, were like, oh my gosh, that would be like a dream thing. Or mm-hmm. was it at the moment like, this is just paying my grad school and then I need to figure out what it's going to be like? Yes and no. I'm a person of faith, and even though I haven't always been um, very active with it, I've always been on the lookout for what I feel is kind of the divine hand that is guiding me. And, you know, randomly walking up to a career center the day before a giant fellowship is due, you know, and getting it is kind of, I thought it was a pretty clear sign. So it was also the fulfillment of a prophecy from a dear, dear mentor and friend named Gary O'Neill, whose story is just as unlikely as mine. Grew up in this small town, just like me, quite a bit older than I. When I was in 11th grade, our teachers couldn't go on strike because it was illegal in New Hampshire, but they could certainly work to rule. So at 2.35 every day, they dropped their pencils and they left. And that was their form of protest over not being paid enough. And the students very much supported this, but it was kind of rotten, that all the after-school activities were canceled except for sports. And I couldn't be part of sports because when I was in third grade, I developed a really serious heart condition that later, years later, resolved itself, thank God. But it was kind of touch and go, you know, for a number of my years going up through high school. So sports really wasn't a possibility for me. Gary looked at this and said, this isn't right. And being a wealthy industrialist with an interest in the arts, he comes into the school like a whirling dervish and teaches us all about theater and art and starts a school newspaper and just whatever we wanted to do. He opened our eyes up to it, brought us to Boston, he attended the opera, he brought us to Paris. He was a miracle. He is a miracle. One day we were just, before I graduated from high school, we were just talking about, you know, the future. He said, well, you're going to be a diplomat. I said, a what now? He said, a diplomat. (laughs) That's what you're going to do. I said, hmm, okay. I didn't even, I think I had some vague idea of what that meant, like top hats and, you know, tails and cocktail parties and stuff, uh, you know, somewhere uh, elegant overseas. But other than that, I really hadn't thought about it. You know, occasionally I'd come into contact with people. Obviously, when I was overseas, especially with the Fulbright, I needed contacts with the uh, embassy there like to get my mail and things. But hadn't really crossed my mind as like, you know, the dream from the age of 12 or something. So 
I kind of thought, okay, this is what we're going to do for now. And then maybe we'll do something else later. But, you know, the five-year commitment came and went. And I think it was year seven. I turned to my wife. I was like, you know, we actually finished our commitment. What do you want to do? And we were both like, of course, we're going to stay. This is, you, I, Leslie, I can't even tell you what a great career this is. It's a dream. One of the reasons why Americans, I don't think, really understand what the Foreign Service does is because it's unbelievable. Yeah. Like if you tried to make a movie about it or a TV show, which they've <laughs> they tried have, yeah. and failed miserably, you know, you just can't, you can't capture all of it. Like one moment you're saving a baby in a car accident to, you know, in some third world country somewhere. The next minute you're working on arms control negotiations. Another minute you're like trying to figure out how to fix the plumbing in the embassy toilets. And it's all you. Okay, so let's take everybody back a step. So you get the Foreign Service gig, you're done with grad school. What is life like as a Foreign Service person? First of all, there's a few different categories of Foreign Service employee. Um, If you're working at the State Department full time and you never leave Washington, that's because you're a civil service professional just like working at, uh, you know, Department of Education or, um, you know, Homeland Security, you are a career government professional and you have your own hierarchy and your own promotion system. Same thing if you're a military officer, you have your ranks and your hierarchy. The Foreign Service has its own system that is modeled exactly on the U.S. military. And so you come in at a low grade and then you try to do well. And if you are, you're promoted and you keep going. And if you're promoted, you keep going. But if, if you don't get promoted at a certain point, it's an up or out system. And so you have to leave, which you know, creates flow through the system. There are officers. Those people, uh, sometimes they're called generalists because they're meant to be generally able to you know, fix toilets, do arms control negotiations and save babies. And that's what I am. You can be one of five different tracks, political, economic, public diplomacy, consular, or management, and I'm on the political track. Again, going back to my days at Dartmouth, my interest in political science. But you can also be a specialist. Those are people who are specialized in security. We get a lot of former police officers and people like that who are federal agents once they go overseas as part of the diplomatic security service. We have IT specialists. We have um, engineers, facilities managers, you know, you name it, whatever you need to have a U.S. government facility run overseas, we do. And what do we do overseas? Whatever the U.S. government needs done overseas. Yeah. So you are a generalist mm-hmm. and yet you have some special skills. You have your language. You mm-hmm. have a knowledge of certain parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And so what has your career path looked like because of those things and because of other opportunities that you've decided this has been the, the thing I need to do right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I like your theme for this podcast because I took the Robert Frost class um, in my freshman year. I don't know if you did as well, I but no, I didn't. I loved it, yeah, especially being from New Hampshire. I mean, of course, mm. you got to like Robert Frost. And man, did I get into it. So I learned there in that class that The Road Not Taken was actually kind of a sarcastic poem about his friend Edward Thomas who was really, you know, indecisive, couldn't ever decide on what to do. And even once he decided, was always wringing his hands and thinking, 
oh gosh, you know, I took this road, but what if I'd taken that one? And so Frost kind of wrote it as a joke. And I got to say, I don't think that I've ever had that problem where I've regretted or I've wondered, oh my gosh, what if I'd done something else? What if I went here or there? And so I haven't really regretted being sent to the Middle East for the past two decades. You would think I'd be stationed in West Africa and I'd use my French and my knowledge of West African society built up from Dartmouth and grad school and my marriage. And no, (laughs) no, never, ever served there. But it's okay. You know, the Middle East is really a focus of U.S. foreign policy, for better or for worse. It's fascinating. You know, it's the place where three major religions uh, got their start and a bunch of smaller ones, too. And, um, you know, we have a lot of interests that we have to uh, advance, whether it's um, trying to counter Iran's malign activities or trying to rectify uh, the worst humanitarian disasters on the planet right now in Syria or Yemen or stop the Libyan civil war or on and on and on. These are just really exciting things to be working on. So I don't I don't regret that road not taken. Yeah, not at all. And and sometimes those those roads that you think are going to be there just don't present themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and then you find another path. So that mm-hmm. was the path actually where we converged, having not right. known one another at Dartmouth, but our crossroads was in Doha. Yeah. Um, and I was leading a delegation in Qatar and other places. And you kind of helped open all sorts of doors there. And we had this moment of, oh, and we think we have this connection. So that was really a nice, a nice way to bring Dartmouth really around the world. But I think one of the things of foreign service is it is opportunity on top of opportunity on on top of opportunity so that Mm -hmm. you're these commitments aren't like set in stone, you don't know how long you'll stay. Can you talk a little bit about that? And like, then, you know, where are you in the progression of knowing what's next? Yeah, every couple of years, we have to apply for our next position. And, you know, it's not like the civil service where until you get that next position, you're just going to stay where you are. No, you will leave. You have a tour of duty that is defined. And um, it's kind of like a game of musical chairs. Eventually, once the music stops, pretty much everybody will have a seat. And those that don't are the ones that don't get promoted, as I said, and they're selected out eventually. But so it's every two or three years or every year, if you're in uh, Iraq, I ended up doing two there, back to back. But um, you know, the rest of the time, it's every couple of years, and I have almost never ended up where I thought I was going to go, or where I really had my sights set on. And again, I don't regret any bit of it because it's been such an interesting journey. I will say though that early on, someone's spouse said to me, you know. The moves don't get any easier. They only get harder as time goes on. And she's right, because your ties to your old friends and your family become uh, more tenuous over time. It hurts you more and more to uproot your family and see the the friendship bonds there uh, also become more tenuous between all of them. So that is hard. It is a hardship. It's true we're not carrying rucksacks and living in tents and things like some people do in the military, but all of us in the Foreign Service spend at least two-thirds of our careers overseas. Mm. And most people will do a fair amount of that time in hardship posts where 
military fr families, frankly, would never go. And our families go with us almost everywhere. And they endure everything. Bad schools, foreign languages, not knowing where to get a haircut every single time you move. But they put up with it. You know, it does take something out of you, but it also gives you so much because every assignment is like a graduate program in that country. Yeah. And so by the end of two or three years, you feel like you're the worldwide expert on whatever politics in Qatar or something like that. But then it also professionally rips your heart out because then you leave and you got to learn something else. Right. Just when you just when you got it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I like that idea of generalist because it's not that you need to know all the time the country intricacies in order to do the good diplomatic work, right? right. It's it's the kind of approaches that you take that are generalizable over these right. places. So when you're looking back at your mentor, what mm -hmm. is it that he saw in you that said diplomat? That's a good question. Well... I was really lucky to actually be good at French from a young age. I remember going around to yard sales, and if I ever saw a French book, I would just randomly buy it, even though I had no idea what, you know, you didn't have the internet back then. You couldn't just go learn stuff. I was really lucky that in third grade, our high school French teacher decided to send a couple of her high school students into the third grade to teach us French once or twice a week. And it really just sparked something in me. So by the time I got to regular French in ninth grade, you know, I was really good. Or I felt like I was really good. I was kind of confident. And that just built upon itself. And I went to a public school in a really small town. There were maybe 20 kids in my graduating class. And the teachers, because by the time you were in 11th or 12th grade, there were only one or two or three or four kids in each class. So I was the only French student in French 4. I was one of four students in English class, maybe six. So the teachers felt they could do cross-curriculum projects so much more easily. So if I was reading Moliere in French class, my mentor would say, all right, let's do a Moliere play and bring that around, you know, for a, a tour in English, you know. So it was cross-disciplinary. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. I think it might have been partly that and partly that I just like to get along with people. I liked having friends from all different sectors of society, such as they were in that small town. My wife sometimes asks me, like, you know, why do you have so many Facebook friends from back home? You're, you never see them. I mean, the proof is we've been married 22 years and she hasn't met some of them. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I get it. But I spent the first good 13 years of my life with these people. They'll be at my funeral, even though, uh, even though we don't see each other every day or, or even ever now, necessarily, they'll be there. They're just those kind of friends. Yeah. So it's about relationships and peacekeeping and uh, thus the no argumentative lawyer for you, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Your experiences are so rich and I'm sure that given your generalist tendencies and your diplomatic tendencies, uh, wherever the next step is, it'll be the right one and you'll make the most of it. And I'm just so glad that we got to reconnect on closer terms this time. Likewise. That was Joey Hood, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. 
Spending over two decades in the Foreign Service, chiefly in the Middle East, he has served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Iraq and Kuwait and Consul General in Tehran, Saudi Arabia. And just because Joey met me for the first time in Qatar does not mean our meeting needs to be so far flung. With the aid of the internet, I'm prepared to listen to your story wherever you are. Use our contact form at roadstakenshow.com and we'll set up a chat soon. And even if you're not quite ready to share your own story, I hope you'll join me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, listening to another great story on the next Roads Taken. Roads Taken.